Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind. Also younger than the sun. And our bonnet boat was one as we sailed into the mystic. In this episode, I continue reading from my memoir, Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland. So far, I'd met God the Father, who seemed distant and far away, God the Son, who was more like me, but better, and God the Holy Spirit, who was just one wild ride. But what was I supposed to do with all that? What did they, any one of them or all of them together, have to do with living my life? So now it was time to meet myself. I'm reading from Chapter 4, Part 1. And when that falcon blows, I want to hear it. The members of the St. John's Youth Group dispersed to universities far and wide, but the diaspora found a new place to gather whenever they came back to town. Dave Ward, the one who'd lit the flame of faith in so many of us, was in Cookstown, 90 kilometers north of Toronto, only an hour's drive away. There he preached his spirited message about the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, but now to an older crowd— when they didn't respond to the way the young people had, when they shook his hand at the door with a damning-by-faint-praise words of Christian forbearance, nice service, Reverend, Dave turned up the heat. If you're over 50, he preached one Sunday, and you still haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, there's no hope for you. Why are you even here? Sometimes his teaching would take a bizarre turn toward the pop psychological People were either strong spirits or gentle spirits, with perhaps a phlegmatic or melancholic disposition. Sometimes a Bible verse would catch his attention and it would become a new rule for the community, like the yes-no principle. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Sex was a big topic for Dave, even after he got married. It titillated the younger people, but it made the older ones blanch, especially when it came from the pulpit. To his young followers, he'd say, better to marry than to burn, quoting the Apostle Paul, who himself chose not to marry, and they'd all run off and get married. To his older congregation, he'd say, if you and your wife wake up some Sunday morning and you want to have sex instead of coming to church, go ahead. It's a gift from God. So the pews of his country church began to empty of their stalwart older members, and young people from the city flocked up to replace them. They wanted to hear about sex from the pulpit. Sunday morning worship continued traditionally, according to the Book of Common Prayer. Dave would appear in his liturgical garb, black cassock, white surplice, and preaching scarf, even if the sermon went off in surprising new directions, the liturgy itself remained reassuringly Anglican and therefore relatively safe. But on Sunday evenings, the church filled with young people, 
praise songs led by a worship band, usurped hymns sung from the hymn book. Prayer leaders would just want to thank Jesus, yes, Lord, amen, and the sermon might be preached by one of Dave's chosen lieutenants, whichever one was in favor that week. Years later, I got to know Norm, an older member of Dave's Cookstown congregation, who had hung in when the going there got strange. He had an open and childlike countenance, which made him a natural as the church's greeter, welcoming people at the door and handing out songbooks as they gathered for worship. He told me an angel visited them at the church one Sunday evening. The angel, he said, was tall and hovered a few feet above the floor, bending low to get his wings through the main doors. He watched the service with Norm from the back of the church for a while and then headed off again into the night. Still, Thursday nights were the real show, better than church itself. Dave would hold a circle down in the church hall beneath the sanctuary. There the group would sit in a tense silence, waiting for someone to put something out. When they did, the show would begin. I was there the night George put something out into the group, something he thought would be innocuous, but nothing was innocuous in that setting. George was a former member of the St. John's Youth Group. He was a good person and smart, but when he made the simple observation that it was good to be there, people sat up. Dave had George in his sights. You're not coming through, George, Dave said, squinting his eyes at him from across the circle. George tried again. Well, I just mean that it's good when we're all together like this, that's all. But now others picked up on the scent. I can't hear you, George. Come on, man, get real. George cleared his throat and tried to get real. But a nervous smile spread across his face and sweat began to form on his brow, running down his sideburns, making him look all the more like a man with guilty secrets. The group kept him on the hot seat, summoning the real George to appear, until their interest waned and they turned on someone else. It was chilling. Men could speak out in the group and go to Dave for spiritual counsel during the week. Dave would sit at home and take their calls. There was spiritual warfare going on at their places of work and issues between them and their wives. But the women couldn't receive pastoral care from Dave directly. They had to go through a man. If a woman didn't have a man to go through, she would be assigned one, a protector, and then it would be okay. One woman didn't have a man. Dave told her it was because she wasn't spiritually whole. He told her that some of the men in the church found her to be a temptress, as if this was her problem. When she had been in a car accident and was convalescing on a friend's couch, Dave came over with a small delegation from the church. They weren't there to pray or to offer their support. They were there to get her to examine her conscience. Surely the accident was a result of something amiss in her spiritual life. Meanwhile, if a man looked across the circle at a woman and felt the rising of love in his loins, chances were he'd be marrying her within a month, and she'd be having his babies a year after that, marry or burn. I wasn't part of the Cookstown congregation, but I kept tabs on it. I felt like the disciples of John the Baptist when John sent them to ask Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, 
or should we expect another? John had baptized him for heaven's sake, and he still wasn't sure? Yet that's how I felt about Dave. I was troubled by the cultish aspects of his ministry, but there was always a recognizable grain of truth in what he said, and an excitement in the way he said it. The effect was hypnotic, and I just couldn't stay away. Sometimes, like many of my friends, I would drive out to see Dave for a visit, for a consultation, to test my instincts about him against the reality of sitting with him in his parlor. Once I went to see him about a personal matter. A friend of mine was up for a social visit. Suddenly Dave said to her, Okay, you've got to go. I got a heavy dude coming to see me now. As she walked out, I walked in. I never thought of myself as a heavy dude, but he sensed my reserve, and that must have made me look like a holdout and therefore a difficult case. Nailed to that cross, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and he loved you so much that he died for you, and he wants you to come to him and believe in him and be forgiven. At first, classes at York University just seemed like an extension of grade 13. There was a lot of talking and fooling around in the lecture theaters. They were so much larger than a high school classroom, with more space for cloaking bad behavior. One particularly rowdy day, our lecturer in biology fired his chalk into the midst of us and walked off stage muttering, What's the point? A few of the courses in my first year were compulsory, like biology reflecting York's commitment to a well-rounded liberal education. But where I could choose my own courses, I found I had a strange new desire actually to learn something. If the professor was the least bit personable, or even just approachable, I felt additional motivation for diving in and doing the work. But the rigid personal faith in which I had been tutored by Dave Ward, supported by my friends at St. John's, introduced some problems for me at a liberal arts university. I had great respect for the professors and lecturers as I got to know them, for their intelligence and for the academic integrity they displayed. No bad assumptions would go unchallenged. I liked that. But I also wanted to witness to these secular people, knowing I had to do it carefully. I began to expose my religious beliefs in essays, I would qualify my remarks by saying, In my experience as a Christian, or speaking from within the Christian tradition, and off I'd go. My profs were by and large tolerant when I declared myself in that way, but they weren't going to let me get away with sloppy reasoning, whatever my personal beliefs. Sometimes they even critiqued my understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. Secretly, I loved it when they did that. It was as if they held the keys to some new and intelligent way of living out my faith. To my fellow classmates, I was less circumspect. In one humanities seminar where we were discussing reasons for hope in the world, I preached to them about hope coming from Jesus Christ and his love for us. I was implying, of course, that they should have a faith like mine, and then they'd learn a thing or two about hope— There was an awkward silence. Then the discussion picked up and carried on, without me. In my social science class, I began sitting next to a girl I liked. We became friendly. 
Things were going well between us until the day I leaned over and delivered the world's worst pickup line. You know, I said, none of this makes any difference because the world is coming to an end. She thought about that and then turned back to me. If that's true, she whispered, then what the hell are you doing here? She was close enough to feel the heat coming off my face. I joined the York Christian Fellowship. It included some Christian faculty members. That might have balanced things out a bit for me, their smarts tempering my enthusiasm. But then, under the banner of that group, I brought Dave Ward in to evangelize the university from the bear pit in the student commons. I opened for him, performing a few Christian songs with my guitar, softening the crowd for Dave's hardball pitch about the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. We attracted curious passers-by and a few hecklers, but no takers. The following summer, when I wasn't working at the liquor store, I would take my guitar to Kew Beach or to the Toronto Islands, where Dave liked to do some good old-fashioned street preaching. I also sang my Christian songs from the back of a flatbed truck in a small-town parade— and played at a drive-in worship service in an outdoor mall, the congregation all sitting out in their cars. I was faithfully fulfilling the job description of a young follower of Jesus, intent on converting the world to my, or to Dave's, way of thinking. But something began to shift when I returned to York for my second year. I did not, in fact, think I was smarter than my teachers. It bothered me that most of them considered my faith to be beneath their serious consideration. By their own life and witness, there might be another way of having faith in the real world. They were beginning to influence me. One of those influences turned out to be a rabbi. Saul Tannenzaf taught in the philosophy department. He was as corpulent as a walrus, shy, avoiding sustained eye contact and conversation, and he spoke softly. But he allowed himself a sly smile when something amused him, and much did. Rabbi Tanenzaf respected my faith, even as he observed religiously his own. He would eat his tuna salad for lunch alone in his office to avoid breaking kosher rules by eating in the cafeteria. But I was welcome to join him there. So I did, and we talked about whatever pressing philosophical issues had arisen for me in class, or about the more personal challenges of living out one's faith in a secular public institution. He was sympathetic, but restrained, suggesting that perhaps a witness of presence was as important as a witness of words. I wished my faith looked like that of the good rabbi. I even hoped that my faith might carve lines into my face like those carved into his own, with the furrowed brow of a deep thinker and the spreading crow's feet of a man who liked to laugh. Then there was Earl Breach. He was a biblical scholar, a recent graduate from Harvard, teaching at a school that offered no biblical or theological courses. He taught instead in York's humanities department— The title of his course caught my eye right away, Jesus and Interpretation. The course wasn't about Jesus, but I didn't care. It was about the ways in which Jesus has received our projections through the ages, reflecting not his life, 
which remains a mystery to us, but our own. That was close enough for me. I was so taken by the course and by its premise that I poured myself into our first assignment, an essay about the theme of resurrection in Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. For the first time, I wasn't judging according to my pre-existing beliefs and ideas. I was exploring, asking questions, identifying tensions yet to be resolved. In other words, I was thinking. When Professor Breach handed our papers back to us, it became clear he was a tough marker. None of our papers approached the standards he was expecting of us, he said. None of them except one. I glanced around the room to see who the brown noser might be. This one, he said, and he slid the paper across the table to me. He'd given it an A. It took a while, weeks, maybe months, for the implication to sink in. I might actually be smart after all, and competent, capable even of scholarly thought. When it did sink in, I knew my faith was in for a big transformation. This was a better way to be a Christian, a thinking Christian, than the way I had learned from Dave Ward. The courses that engaged me most at York were the ones exploring questions of meaning. Those were found in the humanities, mostly, but also in the psychology and philosophy departments. At some point during my second year, it dawned on me that the broad subject area I was pursuing, in reality, was religious studies, which was not something York offered as a degree program. So I worked with a faculty advisor and drew up a proposal to continue my degree as an oddity the university dubbed a Bachelor of Arts Individualized Studies. It would add a year to my program, making it a four-year honors degree, but this way I could take any course I wanted, which I knew was the only way to sustain my interest, not to mention my grades. Two of my professors, Earl Breach and Patrick Gray, encouraged my academic progress by suggesting future possibilities for me. Earl Breach said that when I had achieved my bachelor's degree, I should apply for graduate studies to the Harvard Divinity School, where he had studied. Patrick Gray was an Anglican priest, a graduate of Oxford, who had turned away from active ministry to study early church history as an academic— he tutored me in a reading course that focused on the early development of the Church in the West. He submitted an application on my behalf to the Fund for Theological Education out of Princeton for a bursary that would send me to the seminary of my choice. Neither of those far-flung possibilities panned out, though I pursued both. Harvard would have been prohibitively expensive, especially for a foreign student and I failed sufficiently to impress the administrators of the Fund for Theological Education, though they said nice things about me. It was just as well, as I wasn't sure a seminary was the right place for me anyway. I wasn't looking to become a minister, just to study the religious impulse, perhaps gaining insight into my own. Whatever I did next, wherever I went to study, it was with the new confidence that I'd be able to handle it, 
The Bible didn't tell me so, but my teachers did. Off campus, I became a volunteer leader for Young Life, working to establish a new club in Richmond Hill, north of Toronto. With its relational, soft-sell approach to evangelism, Young Life suited me far better than the brashness of Dave Ward's street preaching. I worked with Paul Jones, the paid Young Life staff member, and Cindy Watkins, another York student I knew through the York Christian Fellowship. We were a great team. Cindy was taking some of the same courses I was, and she harbored some of the same doubts about the narrowness of our faith as we had both received it. Paul was what I would call a thinking evangelical. He didn't mind the intensity of our theological debates or our spiritual hand-wringing. But every so often, he had to refocus our attention. Okay, you two, he'd say. Who's preparing the skit for Tuesday night? I began to distance myself from Dave Ward and also from my friends who continued to be caught in his tractor beam. Many of them by then had abandoned their studies and moved up to Cookstown to be closer to the source. They took menial jobs to support themselves, intermarried, and had babies, lots of babies, because they believed they were bringing more little followers of Jesus into the world. Dave's church, some of them said, was the only real church in the world— though they had heard there might be another somewhere in France. Those who didn't move to be closer to Dave continued to make the trek up to Cookstown on Sundays and on Thursdays to be fed by his teaching. They enjoyed their inclusion as adjunct members of that tight-knit community of the faithful. None of them, whenever we met up, wanted to hear my theological questions, which they interpreted as doubt. I think they assumed the worst— They were losing me to the world, and Jesus was as well. Better to cut their losses. So I saw less and less of my old friends. The shift in my thinking was evident in my songwriting. After You Can't Look Beyond the Sun, I had written other Christian songs that had an apologetic purpose in the sense of their being defenses of my faith. Leaves of Winter lamented the hollowness of life without Jesus— Leaves of winter on the ground, lose the path, pretend it's found. Unless the Lord builds the house, paraphrasing Psalm 127, promoted Christ's singular claim on our lives. Unless the Lord builds the house, you won't have no house at all. But into the midst of those songs, I began to slip others that signaled I was ready to move on. One in particular, Remember Me, featured these lines in the chorus. Remember me to the friends I used to know. I'm a different place than where they found me. Now they're aware of where I'm bound and they won't go. I don't suppose that they'd believe me. If my songwriting was a testament to the inner shift I was feeling in my faith, it also marked a turning of my heart to my high school sweetheart, Joan. I never thought I'd write a love song, especially not to you. But here I'm sitting rhyming lines to end with, I love you. It may not have been my finest hour in the songwriting department, but it was the first time I had written a love song for someone other than Jesus. Love has a way of throwing us off our game.
I've been reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. Thanks for following along. When I get to the end, this format will change from me doing all the talking to me getting others to do all the talking. In other words, to an interview format. In the meantime, if you'd like to make a comment or share a story from your own life, you can write to me at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. Leave a tweet at Brian E. Pearson 1. Or join the Mystic Cave group on Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. Well, I guess it was inevitable, going back to my own story, that eventually I'd get to love. That's where we'll go on the next episode. I hope you'll join me. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. <laughs>